This content is for institutional investors and information purposes only. It does not contain investment, financial, legal tax or any other advice and should not be relied upon for this purpose. The materials are not tailored to your particular, personal and or financial position. If you require advice based on your specific circumstances, you should contact a professional advisor. Opinions expressed are those of the speakers as of the date of publication, are subject to change without notice and do not necessarily reflect Mercer's opinions. Hi and welcome to Mercer's Critical Thinking, Critical Issues podcast. Bonds have just come through their worst year in record. The Fed hiked rates from 0 to 4.5% over 2022, yields soared, credit spreads widened, and asset values tumbled. 2022 was not a year for bond investors, but with inflation beginning to roll over, a strong start to the year, bonds are now offering levels of income we haven't seen in 20 years, and 2023 looks a little more optimistic. I'm Ashley Darty, Senior Fixed Income Portfolio Manager at Mercer, and I'm pleased to be joined today by Ella Hopsat, Senior Investment Manager, Pigley Asset Management, and Samantha Milner, Head of US Liquid Credit, Aries Management. We'll be discussing the outlook across bond markets for the year ahead and how portfolios may be positioned to take advantage of potential income and returns on offer. So let's get started. First to outlook. Ella, perhaps we'll start with you on the rates and FX side. Could you give us an overview of your views for the year ahead? Thanks, Ash, and, and thanks, everyone, for listening in. Um, it's a, It's been quite the start to the year, given the particular uh, bad year we had in fixed income markets and markets more broadly uh, last year. Uh, so you'd probably think that uh, a lot has changed since. And when you look at, uh, let's focus on the more positive angles of what's changed since last year, that would be uh, volatility in rates markets, uh, which has been uh, was on fire, as we know, last year. Uh, that seems to be stabilizing at uh, elevated level levels, but nothing like what we saw last year. And uh, that seems to be uh, causing some, uh, you know, uh, risk sentiment uh, recovery in, in markets, given that rates fall and sort of the reaction function of central banks is really what dominated last year. Um, and then, you know, in terms of other developments uh, that are still benign in our mind is, is this idea that inflation is falling um, and that's what markets uh, were pricing going into this year. Uh, the extent and stability of that drop are still questionable. Uh, however, for now, for markets, the accelerated uh, uh, pace of inflation seems to be more of a story of 2022 rather than 2023. So what could 2023 be about? It could be um, really about uh, growth, growth and profitability. So um, we're referring to profitability of corporates. Uh, that seems to be the area where the markets are a bit more uncertain. And so with that in mind, uh, there's at least two Fed tails um, in the markets. And one is, you know, how are we going to get a recession, particularly in the U.S., and, and, and how much and how severe? Uh, could we get this uh, beloved soft lending that the Fed's been uh, driving for? Uh, could you even anticipate a growth recovery, right? So a proper growth recovery on the back of China coming back after three years of uh, COVID restrictions. So uh, those are sort of like the more benign sides uh, of it. Um, on the other angle of that, we have sticky wages across the world. I mean, not everywhere, but in sort of like some of the large markets, particularly the US, um, wages remain elevated, causing for uh, monetary policy to stay um to stay much tighter than we've got accustomed to. So what do you do with that? Um, 
it's going to be difficult for fixed income markets to know with certainty which tail to navigate first. Um, so for now, we're engaged much more with this uh, benign Goldilocks tail, right? Where uh, growth slows down, but it's not a disaster and inflation slows down. Um, and at the same time, um, uh, profitability won't fall off a cliff. In our view, that's really, really unclear. And this is probably one of the reasons why leverage in uh, sort of the risk-taking community remains on the low levels. And that to us makes sense. And the reason is because there's low conviction on the broad uh, macro backdrop. Now, you know, having said all of that, what do you do with it? So there are places which, as you say, Ash, uh, offer plenty of values. It's not, it's not everywhere, but for example, we, we talk about real rates being positive for the first time in a while, and that includes the U.S. Uh, so real rates, they are certainly more elevated than at any time over the past 12 years. And so that's been attractive to us. And this has been one of the areas where we like to hold a core position. Um, nothing of the magnitude and size that we would have done pre this breakdown in correlations between rates and equity. Um, and the reason for that is because it doesn't offer us the ability to diversify sufficiently our portfolios or our clients' portfolios. But still, there's enough value to want to hold some uh, treasuries. Um, it means that um, of the central banks that still have to catch up with the pickup in inflation from last year, uh, the Bank of England and the uh, ECB still are behind the curve. So that makes us be short of uh, European uh, government bonds, um, particularly. But also at the same time, um, you know, in terms of uh, spread markets, uh, we like some exposure. But again, much smaller size than and magnitude would have done in the past. And we like to hold that, particularly in Europe. This is the area where we covered shorts late last year and are looking to run some smaller magnitude uh, logs. Um, and the reason for that is that we expect some recovery in Europe to take hold. That seems to be playing out. Uh, but also policy is still supportive as real rates are very negative in Europe. So that's supportive of credit spreads and spread products in, in, in general. And then... Um, you know, the last two bastions, I guess, currencies. Um, so in terms of currencies, um, the dollar has a much muddier picture this year. But because of these two tales that we talk about, the uncertainty uh, on recession and also the uncertainty on the inflation side, um, we like to hold some core positions in, in dollars still uh, of much smaller size than we've done over the past four years, but uh, still like to hold some. Uh, we like um, yen properties. So yen is uh, probably one of the second, well, the second largest holding for us. And that's on the back of the reversal of a lot of the themes that we saw play out last year and reversal in policy from the Bank of Japan. We also like exposure um, to commodity baskets. Why commodity baskets? Because of this, not just uh, playing out this China recovery story, but also because um, supply dynamics are very favorable for commodities uh, into your end and, and, and next year. And so that really hedges a bond portfolio probably in the best uh, way possible from those types of tail uh, discussions that we had. Uh, last but not least, in emerging markets, um, I'll bri briefly cover there. For us, Bendu emerges in local rates much more than in hard currency space. We hold exposure to both, but the area where we've been increasing is in local rates where real rates in some countries are extremely high, historically speaking, and very, very attractive uh, to us. Um, and before I forget, last but not least, we also like holding exposures in rates, uh, but not in currencies. So just in rates in those countries where there's high sensitivity to the housing market. So where rates repricing is pushing the burden on uh, homeowners uh, and sort of killing that uh, impulse from consumers uh, as a result of that. So those are some of the key uh, points that we're looking at this year.
Okay. So maybe we'll come back to some of those elements you raised on those kind of non-US exposures in a minute, but but maybe Sam, to come to you, I mean, Ed, I use words like benign and kind of like a muddy market as a move into the year, but we have seen a very large rally in risk markets, even in the first few weeks of the year. So maybe can you give us a sense of what growth profitability looks like kind of in the corporate space and what you're adding up with be across kind of more of those spread, mar- mar- uh, spread center markets like um, uh, uh, investment grade, high yield and, and the loan space? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, we do expect to see continued volatility like we, we, we saw last year. But with both the fundamental backdrop and consumer health seems to be in okay shape. And we've never had back-to-back negative years in the U.S. market. So I'm going to go with history that it's going to be a good year. Um, while most people that want a job can get a job, um, you know, we do see the low-end consumer is certainly one that we're more cautious on. Um, less savings cushion. They're starting to use their credit cards more. But if we're wrong, um, you know, our base case is a shallow recession. And if we're wrong and we're in a deeper and more protracted recession, we believe credit still has more downside protection, is in better shape than most asset classes, you know, call it like, like equities. From the technical side, um, solid in credit for now, unless we see a shift at the macro, we're seeing inflows into high yield. Um, and we don't really see new issue picking up materially. And that's because that, that bid ask between that buyer and the seller, that, that's still um, a discrepancy. And then you have the banks are less willing to commit their balance sheet. So that's essentially a tailwind for credit because investors have a lot of cash. So if there's no primary, they have to buy in the secondary. Of course, it's always important about credit selection, um, you know, focus on downside protection and positive catalysts. We think about um, in terms of near-term maturities, um, you know, uh, M&A as, as companies look to offset, you know, softer revenue. When we think about valuations, we do believe they are attractive, you know, despite seeing that rally you mentioned, Ash, uh, to start the year, we're still looking at 7 to 10% in credit. Um, and going into this period of volatility, we think we're getting paid for those those risks. In previous cycles, at these yields and these dollar prices, gold forward returns over 12 to 24 month period are attractive. Um, and that's across high yield loans and CLOs. Loans and CLOs, um, we're of a current income story and floating rates. So you really don't need a call on rates per se. Loans likely to have less volatility, even if spreads widen, you know, probably maybe 50 basis points you can still return mid to high single digits in our view. CLOs, you can pick up pretty sizable income with 8 to 13% in triple B and double B debt. Um, but that also gives you that cushion if spreads do widen. High yield is more of a dollar price story, more of an opportunity set to go up in quality. That index is now over 50% double B. Um, and it's also at 89. So even if we hit this, this deeper recession, we'll have that reversal in rates that, that give that cushion to wider spreads. Um, it certainly won't be a straight line and there'll certainly be volatility and it's always difficult to time the bottom. So we believe the current entry point in credit is, is quite compelling, you know, it, despite the the rally that we've seen in January. Okay, fantastic. Thanks, Sam. And um, maybe Alec, coming back to you and just you mentioned some of your opening comments there and and look some of your views on the non-US markets. I mean, last year was or twenty twenty two was a was a real divergence year in terms of that strength that we saw in the USD. So coming into 2023, we are somewhat expecting an element of rally across um, EM. You mentioned you like um, uh, EM local rates. Uh, you also mentioned um, business chain in the yen. So just curious on the non-US side as you go into the year, um, what are you, where are you kind of uh, focusing your areas of you know, wanting to drive through that volume in the portfolio? Thank you. So you know, the, the argument of 
positive real yield is an important one. And that's one of the first screens that we've looked at, but also more broadly the fundamental story. And so when we screened for, for local rates in EM, uh, you know, one of the reasons that looked attractive is that, you know, in some cases you're getting eight plus percent real yields. Uh, and that's a very attractive proposition. On the When you combine that with um, sort of a, a fundamental backdrop where the central banks of those countries uh, were first to hike much earlier on, uh, and are now getting priced for cuts. Uh, so you're also getting uh, a pretty bullish uh, ride on the back of that. And then last but not least, um, in terms of uh, momentum on inflation, also this is where, these are some of the countries where the momentum on inflation is also starting to decelerate uh, lower. So you've got a trifecta uh, that actually makes it interesting as an asset class. Now, despite that, the dispersion story is very much alive um, in, the, in the sense that fundamentals vary. And what's quite typical in EM is that some positions that become beloved for good reason also become very crowded. Uh, and it's a bit like getting out of a cinema with one tiny door. And so we see that play out in EM. So liquidity is a huge factor and positioning is a huge factor. So we are cautious um, overall. So we're not looking at a very large allocation. Uh, but at the same time, in places in LATAM, like Brazil and Mexico, uh, places uh, in Asia, for example, um, Korea and Indonesia look attractive to us. Uh, in Korea, we haven't had these types of rates. I mean, they may not be absolutely very high at 3.5%, but let's not, let's not forget it was trading around the 1% level not too long ago. Uh, but also Indonesia, very, very attractive from a real uh, rates perspective. But this is also places, also I would add South Africa to that. These are also places where the fundamental story is, uh, is better for owning uh, local rates. Um, in terms of um, other markets, um, I mentioned the housing market sensitivity. So uh, Sweden looks particularly vulnerable. So we've been owning uh, over uh, exposure there in, in, in rates, uh, but also some of the the other Antipodean uh, and commodity exporter markets, such as Canada, Australia, New Zealand, and Norway, would fall under the same basket. So in all of those regions, we like owning exposure. And one that um, we've been playing more as a contrarian uh, bet has been uh, starting to accumulate some exposure to the very long end of uh, the Japan curve, <laughs> which is, uh, as it seems, uh, the case overnight. Everybody seems to want to play on the short side. But again, you know, that's one of the steepest curves out there for us um, in, in G10 markets. And and it's, you know, if you're playing this repatriation of uh, Japanese uh, domestic investors sort of taking their money back to Japan, now that the cross-currency basis is less attractive in Europe and in the U.S., then you have already got some demand uh, for long-end bonds there um, starting to materialize. Uh, but also, on the other hand, again, back to the real rates argument, real rates in Japan are, you know, small positive, but they're <laughs> positive again for the first time in ages. So, you know, and if you're a dollar-based uh, investor, actually, you can lock in some good rates by, by buying further out in the curve uh, in Japan. Uh, so dollar-denominated, we're talking uh, very, very high yields uh, for something that's uh, of high quality. Okay, great. Thank you. And Michael, back on the inflation question in a moment. I mean, with the reopening of China, there seems to be um, a little bit maybe of a concern and some of that inflation might flow back through on, on the um, the oil and gas side as demand starts to um, starts to come through there again from that from, from China. But um, yeah, just be interesting to know your thoughts, maybe to talk about market stresses in a moment. But Sam, maybe coming to you just on that that whole concept of 
and the U.S. versus non-U.S. on the credit spread opportunity for the year ahead. And certainly from a, a U.S. investor's perspective, Europe looks quite attractive, but there has been a lot of headwinds to Europe over the past year, and some of those elements still continue to weigh. And what are your views on kind of non-U.S. Uh, credit exposure for the year ahead? Yeah, we do believe, yeah, Europe is, is definitely screening attractive. Um, you know, you look at it versus historical averages. You can pick up um, about 200 basis points going from uh, U.S. to Europe. You know, there's a reason, like, as you said, um, you know, given the energy crisis and slowing growth. But after the recent U.S. rally, we are getting paid to be slightly overweight Europe, you know, given this attractive relative value. And the tail risk have been have been muted. You know, the weather god certainly certainly came through there. Um, we were underweight Europe, I would say, starting in April 22, and now we're starting to reverse this position, you know, given a lot, a lot of these risks are, are behind us. Um, of course, it's important to consider the headwinds, and it is a smaller universe in Europe. So when we say overweight, it's versus that 80-20, um, you know, U.S.-Euro split. So it'd be difficult to be over over 50%. So just wanted to make that make that clear. Um and in general, I mean, you know, we talked about credit dispersion. Um, we could get to that later, but it's um, we're seeing the same thing in, in U.S. versus Europe. So while we look at that from a geographic perspective, there's certainly a lot of winners and losers across the regions as well. Okay, great. And 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 maybe coming back to you on kind of market stresses. Um, you talked about Japan that was a little bit of a surprise um, overnight. Although I think the expectation is that they will um, essentially, you know, relax some of their yield curve control and over time, um, potentially in in Q1 or towards the end of Q1. But China is the other big story in the reopening there, and potentially that may see some elements of inflation and uh, potentially stagger or not roll back to the same extent or to the same trajectory that we had thought previously. Um, Will that weigh on EM to some extent, and will that um, reverse some of um, the 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 comments you put forward around real rates? And kind of, how do you guys view that DM versus EM consideration when you look to that kind of the stresses that are in the market for the year ahead and, and the uncertainty that continues to weigh there? Um, I think this is exactly the reason uh, that it's very difficult to have super macro visibility <laughs> this year, and. You know, I should say I should put caution around the the super macro visibility. Uh, you never do have that, but I think this is a particularly uh, messy year, right? In the sense that, um, in the sense that it's very difficult to know exactly when we might hit recession, and 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 as I was saying earlier, how uh, much of a recession are we going to 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 hit? Basically, so when we think about China, um, China has a cyclical story now that's benign which we haven't had in a long time, by the way, in China. Um, and it has a structural story that's very negative. The structural story is is basically one we're familiar with, which is the housing market uh, shouldn't be a source of uh, you know, extrapolated uh, wealth uh, and it's a political decision. So it's this uh, more socialist uh, uh, phenomena of wanting to distribute wealth and so on and so forth. Um, and combined with the fact that most of the uh, Chinese... Uh, investors' savings uh, actually domesticated exactly in that particular sector. So very much tied to the housing sector. That structural headwind is there to stay. And the data we got this week on the demographics uh, with a shrinkage in population also highlights another big structural headwind in China, which is demographic, demographic demand for housing is likely to decelerate uh, in the years ahead. So those forces are huge. The structural forces are always powerful. Um, 
Typically, you see major moves in markets when they collide with cyclical factors. We don't have that right now. Right now, the cyclical story is likely to be benign, um, as I was saying earlier. Now, let's not forget the structural story still matters. Why? Because to us, all it says is um, you can get a recovery, but it's unlikely to be a huge boom. It's not going to be like the types of recoveries that we had massive credit stimulus in China in the past, and that led to huge moves in EM effects, et cetera. So, so we're not expecting the type of recovery, but it's still one uh, that in the context of much lower supply uh, due to the greening of, uh, you know, modern economies, particularly, um, there's been less investment, as you know, in, in, in sort of digging uh, oil and oil rigs and investment in general uh, in fossil fuels. Um, and so as a result, we do have this uh, supply uh, shrinkage uh, in commodities. So if all you need is for China to see a, a cyclical recovery and you could see, uh, you know, commodities take off uh, more meaningfully, this is exactly the reason why we have built a uh, basket of commodity effects uh, in our portfolio. And we still some exposure in a couple of markets to the inflation-linked bonds because uh, this is where, you know, in, in places where we've basically completely priced out any inflation recovery in the, in the over the medium to long term. So it is a risk. It's probably the biggest risk for bond markets. Um, is it a core case uh, for us? Uh, probably not. We'd still see that as a tail, but it's enough to give you at least a couple of quarters in markets where you can see commodities uh, benefit and you can see emerging markets benefit. But the way we tie it in, because China is really super important for the rates debate, the way we tie that in is by saying, what does that mean for the Fed and for central bank pricing elsewhere? Because let's not forget that's important. And what bond markets are telling you is basically that the Fed is going to pause in the next two meetings and then cut substantially. The story we're depicting where China exports some of its recovery elsewhere, I mean, you're saying inflation, yeah, we can call it that via commodities, uh, is, is a scenario where the Fed potentially stays uh, sticky or is forced to respond to a sort of less, um, uh, you know, less uh, of a recession story in the U.S. And so that's likely to reprice uh further the long end of the curves uh, in rates markets. Um, for us, again, it's not the core uh, core scenario. Though. Mm-hmm. Okay, great. And, and Sam, I'm thinking from that point of the Fed pausing and then essentially looking to to reduce rates potentially the latter half of this year, I mean, that will be good news on the corporate side. But while we get there on the path to getting there, essentially, we are expecting um, defaults to pick up. We are expecting expecting stresses to come through that market. Um, it is very much going to be a credit picker's market in this kind of uncertain uh, uncertain point of view. So just just curious, you know, how do you guys look at that increasing default expectation relative to the returns that you're getting in the portfolio? And are, are investors protected by uh, the yield that we have coming through there? Yeah, absolutely. We're, um, we're coming from such a, a low base. The market has, and already identified these called three to five percent, you know, credits that could default with some margin of error. There, there, of course, there are going to be some prizes, some surprises. Um, but when you think about, you know, maturities have been pushed out. Um, you know, twenty. We just had a cycle in twenty twenty, and every company that could came to market, right? Every cruise line, every movie theater, every restaurant. Um, you know, all these maturities have been have been pushed out. Interest coverage is high, um, so it's really hard to see triggers for defaults to be higher than that. You know, call it three to five percent. So you're really looking at it reverting to that to that mean. Um, you know, that said, if we do get an extended stagflation environment, it's not our best case, not our base case. But of course, at that point, you would see some elevated defaults. Um, but we do take comfort that we're entering this, you know, 
I'm putting my air quotes, most talked about recession, um, you know, with corporate balance sheets in good shape. And as we talked about, the consumer is really healthy. I mean, obviously, we, we were watching that low end, um, but we had this Goldilocks job report in January, strong labor market, but we just were uh, lower than expected. And again, if we're wrong, um, you know, credit should hold up better than equity. So we, we feel pretty good about where we stand today. Um, and you touched on the credit dispersion, you know, um, defaults, you know, will will rise, but it's certainly down to picking the best credits. And, you know, we think about some companies will be very successful in passing through higher costs and navigating demand headwinds and others will struggle. So we see, you know, just as an example, you know, we see healthcare tech names have been performing very well, but healthcare providers like hospitals are having trouble passing through labor inflation. And these are set rates with Medicare, as an example. You can't negotiate with the government. So, you know, they're having they're having troubles there. So unless you're getting paid for those types of risks, we don't need to be in those credits. We have a $5 trillion opportunity set in liquid credit. So when you think about, you know, defaults in that 3 to 5% context, um, you know, we think we're we're getting more than paid um, for that for that outlook. Um, and again, even if it surprises to the upside, it's not going to be material number. Okay, great. Shouldn't be a material number, I'll say. <laughs> And, um, and yeah, there's uh, certainly issues on, on both sides of the Atlantic in terms of passing through some of those children's healthcare costs. And so maybe just to come on to kind of your, your let's call it top one, two themes that you guys are going to be implementing in your portfolios for the first half of, of this year. And you've mentioned quite a few of them already throughout our discussion, but maybe Ella, just coming to you first and Ella, with the an investment horizon, and let's just call it at the first six months of the year, because this is a very, as you say, uncertain, potentially benign uh, environment. What are those kind of top one, two trades that you feel your portfolios will be positioned around um, for the first first portion of this year? I mean, as as you all know, Alash, we tend to follow a very thematic process or themes tend to be a bit longer term, but certainly one of those themes that's made a, an entry last year is the central bank credibility theme. Um, it's a very important one uh, because really it's, um, you know, it's, it's one that looks at the factor of correlation uh, breakdowns that we've seen that is still very much alive. So we've shifted in a much more benign paradigm now. Uh, where equities rally, rates rally, everything's great, spreads compressed. But let's not forget that's the still good old positive correlation that we saw last year and that can flip at any point, right? Um, you know, so what do you so what do we mean with the central bank credibility? Uh, that all that's basically saying is that um in the efforts to um to deal with the aftermath that was Ukraine, the Ukraine war. Um, and what that's meant for rates markets and uh, the place we found ourselves with, you know, having to digest credit and fiscal expansion for, on the back of the pandemic, um, we are uh, effectively seeing different response functions from central banks. Um, and that's across the board. Uh, so one that we would put as being more credible, at least for, for the time being, at least for the next six months, as you say, is the, the Federal Reserve. So we'd expect the Fed to be more hawkish over the short term, which can increase the risks of a harder recession or harder lending later on. Uh, but we see a different reaction function uh, to the European Central Bank, to the Bank of England, and also to those central banks of those countries where the housing market is really um, under a lot of pressure because of the repricing in, in mortgages and in interest rates. And so we would um, want to be short of those uh, bonds in the markets where central banks will likely run inflation hotter. 
over the medium term, and that that includes Europe. And so probably the bigger position that we're running to express that theme is short of bonds, German bonds, and long of treasuries. Uh, and also the, the curves of those respective markets were still running flatter curves in the U.S., and, and steeper curves uh, in Europe. So that's probably the the bigger kind of theme uh, that we would take away. Great, thank you. And I think, yeah, you know, that, that theme around central bank credibility is a really great one. I mean, central banks owned all of the narrative or led all of the narrative in 2022. It's not going to really be any different, certainly for the first part of 2023 as well. And Sam, coming across to yourself, you mentioned uh, in healthcare, are there any other kind of key themes or or pockets that you see within your portfolios, the credit side as being kind of the leaders um, uh, for the first kind of portion of the uh, of the first half this year. And I think the good news is that we can go up in quality, but still generate strong income. So that that's been our theme. So um, we don't really need for distressed credit. We don't need to reach in this environment. So instead of reaching for these single name risks, you can buy CLO debt, which we think is really interesting. It's it's lagged this recent rally. You can pick up you know, 8 to 13% current income in triple B to double B CLO debt with strong credit enhancement, um, you know, i.e. downside protection, you would have to see double digit defaults every year to impair most triple B CLOs. So, you know, there's certainly marked market risk in, in CLOs, but we feel very good from a, a downside protection standpoint. Um, and on the, um, on the bond and loan side, you know, we do think that the higher quality side is very interesting. So for high yields, you can pick up that discount and in loans, you get that, that current income without taking significant credit risk. Now, given that benign credit, um, the benign defaults that I talked about before, we do feel comfortable, you know, kind of pairing this with some of that performing um, triple C risk. Um, you know, so you kind of, you think about a company where the balance sheets may have a little bit more leverage in the market, but it's a more stable business and you can get really strong returns there. So I would say mostly going up in quality, but you can still pair it with some um, down the risk spectrum. Right. I think that's, that's, you know, again, a theme. I think our uh, investors broadly will be, be really happy to hear that, that, uh, that's going up in quality and they can still manage to get in those, that really nice income into the portfolio and, and be, uh, more protected, uh, relative to what we see on that, on that increasing, um, default expectation for the lower quality stuff. Um, I think we are probably nearly reaching the end of our discussion today, so we're probably just about out of time. But I want to thank both of you for, for joining me here today. Um, and if you are an asset owner uh, and you're interested in finding out more about how to position your fixed and income portfolio in the year ahead, then please reach out to your bursar contact. You can share our latest reference portfolios and asset allocation fees. So thank you again to Ada and San, and thank you for joining us today.